Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Jens Nordvik, shall we? Exanta Data founder and CEO. Fair to say that summer never really got started, so I don't think we can say summer ended if it never started yet. Excuse me, and summer never got started. He came back from a sabbatical. Okay, trust <laughs> You've me, just summer come got back started. From yours. <laughs> well, yeah, but my—I didn't have the romance of the images of I you thought, on the Matterhorn. I thought we were going to wait at least twenty minutes before we started oh. taking digs at each Jens other. Jens asked me, did, Jens goes, did he really climb the Matterhorn? <laughs> Jens, talk to me about the morning so far because it has been fair to say pretty crazy so i think i think what's going on is that we've had a big drop in the equity market on friday and uh, the u.s authorities are keen to generate a bounce today and that's why the communication is uh how should we say confusing but the attempt to to talk up the the equity market that's what's going on if i can make another comment on the dollar like on friday obviously we we had a lot of things going on uh, we've we've seen on a number of occasions that the dollar tends to now uh, be weakened against the yen and the euro when you have dramatic escalation on the trade front because the Fed has now communicated that they are going to be potentially easing more aggressively when these things happen. Uh, so that's the kind of bounce you're having today. Like we, the dollar's coming back after after that uh, setback on Friday. Uh, and uh, that's what you're seeing in the euro cross and in the yen cross. In the general sort of cheat guide for foreign exchange over the last couple of years, and you and I have gone back and forth on this yen a couple of times, when global risk appetite is good, the dollar is weaker. When it's bad, the dollar is stronger. But there's some extra nuance, and you've touched on it. The way the euro behaves in global risk-off, it's not the story this morning, but it's been the story over the last several months. Just walk our listeners through it, Jens, why this is slightly different for the euro, just in terms of the risk-mitigating characteristics of the single currency that maybe they didn't have several years back. Well, I I think you can actually see it, and this is something we track closely in our data, that over the last couple of weeks, we've had various types of repatriation. Like people normally invest uh, outside their country in good times. And then we, when we had tension, some of that money comes back. We've seen a lot of money, especially in equity space, come back to the US that was previously invested in emerging markets. And in Europe, you've had a little <laughs> bit of the same. So essentially, equity investors yeah. in Europe are getting more cautious and repatriating. That's why we've had both the euro and the dollar actually being quite strong at the same time in the month of August. What we've observed in August, what we've observed Friday, what we see today, what we're going to see this coming Thursday, etc. Do you look at it as continuous functions of smooth vectors or is there a discontinuity and an instability right now at critical levels? Well, so I would say we all know that Powell spoke on Friday and we all know there was tweets about tariffs, but there was actually a third thing. There was news reporting about like things going on in the background to get the dollar to trade weaker, right? So that almost didn't get any airtime on on Friday because there was so much else going on. But there is this talk about a currency tax or things that would be done to essentially remove Powell from his position of power, all meant to weaken the dollar. So that was part of the reason why the dollar was uh, weaker against the yen and the euro on Friday. And the question is, we come back and say, okay, is that just something that's being discussed Or is it really something investors have to take seriously? So it is definitely unnerving as a 
global portfolio manager not knowing what the dollar policy is, and it creates a lot of volatility. So where do you come out on that debate right now, Jens? Because it's an important one. What do you tell clients? Do you think this, it's something that gets followed up with action? So... Uh, as, I, as I mentioned with Tom on, on the TV uh, like a couple of minutes ago. What are my other properties? We have to think about currency intervention, but we also have to acknowledge that if currency intervention, U.S. unilateral currency intervention is going to be effective, it's going to be a commitment to do unlimited amounts. It's not enough to do $10 billion or $20 How billion. Do you, Where does the unlimited come from with a fiscal deficit, et cetera, et cetera? Where, where it's do, very simple. Do we print it? It's very simple. Like the only balance sheet that can offer unlimited potential amounts yeah. is the Fed balance sheet. So that's why it's crucial, right? In the past, it has always been the case that there was a coordination between the Treasury and the Fed. There was even a, a kind of like rule of thumb that they did half and half. So if the Trump administration wants to go ahead with currency intervention, they have to get the Fed on board with it. Otherwise, it's yeah. going to be meaningless. I'm broke, dude. Do you have a trade that can get me to September? I mean, is there a trade right now in all this craziness? Well, so I think one thing that's interesting is that because we have so much going on in terms of uncertainty about U.S. policy, it has been forgotten that the ECB is probably going to deliver more QE on September 12th. So I think there's some trades around that that could be very interesting. If we can push the intervention risk and all that crazy stuff in the background, Yeah, we're probably going to see the euro drift lower as we get that QE priced. And uh, it would be a huge shock to investors if we trade below 110 now. So uh, right. it's not very far from where we are, but that's yeah, a level we haven't seen since 2017. Yeah. Jens, thank you so much. It's not enough Great time. To see you, we can do four hours with you uh, this morning. <laughs> Up until the summer, we had a massive year for credit in store. The back half is looking a little bit more complex. Pleased to say that Marky Patel joins us now, Wells Fargo Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Marky, walk us through it. What's the message for our listeners this morning in the world of U.S. credit? Well, I think that everything looks okay for uh, risk assets, that is high-yield bonds and uh, investment-grade corporate bonds. And we clearly are going to see treasuries in that trading range probably heading lower. So that's a pretty good backdrop if Powell is committed to being passive, data-dependent, and not aggressively trying to tighten credit conditions. Marky, now is a good opportunity to reflect on the speech from Chairman Powell on Friday. It has been overtaken by events, but what was in that speech for you that stood out that you think we need to pay a little bit more attention to? Well, two things. One, the the Fed is clearly going to be a follower, not a leader in determining credit conditions. And the second thing is they clearly are still working on an intellectual framework for where should they try to set interest rates, what's the neutral rate of interest with the, the economy growing. So I think they don't have a larger framework, so they're just sort of you know, just taking it as it goes and looking at each uh, data point. Marky, follower, not a leader. This is really important. Financial conditions are loose and they're loose, according to Chairman Powell, because of the anticipated path of Federal Reserve policy. Marky, is that as close as we've come to an endorsement of market pricing from this chairman so far? I would say of any chairman that I can recall, yes. And I think that's positive. 
I'm looking at a 30-year investment grade piece. It has a 4% coupon, price to perfection, 121, yielding 2.80%. It's a famous American brand. We don't even need to bring up the name of the, the company. Why should I own that versus full faith and credit? Just for the extra yield that you get, that extra um, two to two and a half percentage points, we'll simply, you'll simply compound more, and you really aren't taking much risk in investment grade corporates. Even with a huge premium of one twenty one, where it's going to roll out to a one hundred thirty years out. Yes, but you know that's the way the math works on bonds, and actually, in my experience, those very high dollar bonds tend to offer the investor a little bit of value because the yield is yeah. greater than because no one wants to pay the big premium. Folks, that is Margie Patel 101 that you just heard there. Do not be afeard of premium bonds. Are there any bonds out there, Margie, at discount? <laughs> there are very, very few, and uh, typically they're distressed or it, they may yeah. be, say, in the high yield world, 98 cents on the dollar. Let's talk about the young character then, Daniel Fuss. He's at a, a, in Boston at Luma Sales. Margie, I look at you and the heritage of Fuss and Patel and, and all that. There was a point where you, you bought bonds at a discount and you made a credit upgrade as you went along and you actually made some snappy total return. Will we ever get back to that? I don't think in our lifetime, no. Wow. I mean, that you know, this, these are important statements. Lifetime. Folks. Well, this, John, this goes to the heart of your show, The Real Yield. I mean, I mean Margie, do, let me rephrase. Do we ever get back to a legitimate real yield where our listeners who are savior, savers can actually look out 12 months and say, hey, I made a little money? Well, they can make a little money, and of course, if you compare it to inflation, if you make 8% on a bond, but inflation was 7%, you haven't really made that much, and today you're making 1% or 2% over inflation, so that's not bad. Reminds me of a conversation I had about a year ago with Mike Collins of PGIM, and I raised the following question. I said to Mike, how will we look back at this bond market in 10 years' time, looking back in 10, 10 years ago and saying, all that negative yielding debt, $16 trillion worth, wasn't this crazy? And I remember Mike turning around to me and saying, never mind that. What you'll do in 10 years, looking back 10 years, is look at the Treasury market and wish you'd bought a 30-year with a 3% coupon because you probably won't be able to get it. And guess what? 100 basis points south, here we yeah, are at 2.01. Margie, all of the concerns about the deficit, about the debt pile, it's just not in the treasury market, Margie. Is this it? Are we heading to the Japanification, not of the Bund market? We're beyond that. But is that the direction of travel for the treasury market too? I think it is. We've seen Japan go first, <clears throat> Europe go second. We're on that same trail. We have a little bit more robust uh, economic condition, yeah. so we're uh, behind them. But, you know, that burden of debt is simply weighing on returns and growth, and it's a deflationary force. That's How, just the way it is. Do you have equities within your portfolio, within your blended portfolio at Wells Fargo? Do you have equities for dividend growth? Uh, yes, I do. What yes, percent, do. roughly? Uh, right now, it's about 85% and 15% yeah. in high-yield bonds. Yeah. That's where the return will be. I mean, that's where the return will be. What's an appropriate dividend growth for our listeners? I mean, everybody's addicted to double-digit growth or the big fat coupon, say the telephones, whatever. But what's an appropriate dividend growth for Margie Patel? Is it nominal GDP? 
Well, the Standard Poor's dividend yield is a touch under 2%. Yeah. And so for me, 1.5% is good enough if I think I can get capital appreciation to be a lot more than the total 2%. Yeah, but do you model in dividend growth off that 1.8% yield? Uh no, because I think it's really more important is what's the earnings growth cash flow of the whole company that right. determines the dividend. That's a really important statement, folks, on a Monday morning. I mean, Financial Planning 101, uh, it, it, it's simple. Do you look at the company as a whole and its financial metrics, or do you focus in on the dividend growth mantra? And you just heard Ms. Patel weigh in on that. Margie, just as a final question, there'll be many <clears throat> listeners looking at the equity market and saying, those safe bond-type proxies in the equity market is where the biggest appreciation has been. They look expensive right now. We don't want exposure to that area. Margie, what's the message for those individuals this morning? Uh, I think the message is you should dial back income preference in favor of capital appreciation. I think capital appreciation is still undervalued by investors. They still want the yields of yesteryear. Terrific Monday briefing. Margie Patel, thank you so much. Thanks, Margie. uh, Capital management. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Ash Alencar joins us now from Janice Henderson. Dr. Alencar is always a joy to listen to with his work at MIT in chemical engineering and also at Berkeley uh, as well. Ash writes a hyper-detailed note as he is global asset allocation and portfolio manager for Janice. Ash, I'm a big, big believer in sharp ratios because beta, the volatility of the market, really isn't in there. There's a purity to the sharp ratio. You go further and you normalize the sharp ratios, what does that signal within the market hysteria of the last two weeks? Great. Th- thanks, Tom, for the, uh, the kind words. Um, so we do normalize or we adjust the sharp ratio. Um, and we adjust the sharp ratio very quickly for what turns out to be the most important driver of portfolio performance, which are the large moves. Um, the average moves uh, don't uh, impose as big of an impact on how your overall portfolio performs in the long run, but it's the tails that matter the most. Yeah. So one of the problems with the sharp ratio is the fallacy of averages, right? I, I, I could, for example, if I didn't know how to swim, and I'm not a very good swimmer, and I was trying to cross a river, and Tom, you told me the river on average has a depth of three feet, Should I feel comfortable crossing that river or not? I'm probably not going to be comfortable because what if the cross section I'm sitting at right now is not a three feet foot depth, but rather it's 20 feet. Um, So we look at the insurance markets to give us an idea uh, of the potential expected large upside um, as well as the potential large downside um, using a combination of call prices and put options uh, and put prices. And what these option contracts are telling us, which are insurance contracts, they tell us today risky assets aren't offering a very attractive risk premium. Um, uh, equities globally from U.S. equities, uh, uh, non-U.S. developed equities, emerging market equities, they all are showcasing not much upside given the downside risk you bear. Um, And I think that's all an artifact of what's going on in the markets today with uh, 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 uncertainty, obviously, on the trade front, uh, uncertainty on the political front, um, and slowing economic, uh, um, real economic numbers. 
So, Ash, was, was there anything coming out of Jackson Hole last week from Fed Chairman Powell that might suggest that uh, the Fed has an opportunity here to really help markets? No, I actually think that the biggest takeaway um, from the Fed was, and I believe this is the first time Powell directly said this, monetary policy may not be able to do much to quell the uncertainty, um, to cushion the blows on the trade front. Um, that, that's something which is outside of the purview, outside of the toolkit of monetary policy. Um, so so I, I think he, he took a, a stand and a call to action that don't look at monetary policy um, um, to be able to be the panacea for everything. It's just not going to help much when you have these structural risks that, that are potentially hitting um, global trade and, and the fabric um, that, that really has um, um, led to, to, to this great expansion over the last, uh, I don't know, two decades, right. so two, and, three decades. And so unfortunately, it sounds like, I mean, there's some in the market that are kind of coming to the conclusion that there likely won't be resolution to this trade uncertainty until after the 2020 election. If that's in fact the case, then is the best move just to stay on the sidelines here? I think that's right. Um, there's a lot of noise, and I, I actually think you're 100% correct. Um, I, I do believe, um, and the data supports this, the parallels that people are drawing today between the, the trade issues that exist today and the trade issues um, and, and the trade problems that came about during the Great Depression um, and the use of tariffs and a protective stance taken by countries uh, globally um, intensified the recession into a Great Depression are unfounded. Um, what the data shows is it was the gold standard. It was the inability of countries to control the value of the currency that really accelerated this recession into a Great Depression. Um, and the fact is, those countries which were off the gold standard or abandoned the gold standard very quickly only suffered mild recessions, i.e. Japan. It was only those countries that stayed on the gold standard, such as the U.S., such as Germany, yeah. that suffered the Great Depression. Yeah, uh, I know. So yeah, Ken Rogoff's done a ton of work on this, on the yeah. advantages. Do you guys at Janice Henderson have a confidence in floating rate right now? to compensate for all the yeah. uproar we're in? Yeah, I think you see that. I think that's the power and that's the characteristic of an efficient market. What an efficient market does for you and why an efficient market is so powerful, <clears throat> it figures out right. ways to get around artificial barriers. Just like gravity will figure out a way. Yeah. If, if, Tom, you tried to um, prevent water from flowing down a hill. Um, sure, you might be successful for a couple days, but gravity will figure out a way to get that water to the bottom of the hill. Um, and that's what the capital markets do. If there's an artificial uh, imbalance or artificial barrier yeah. such as tariffs, currencies will adjust. <clears throat> and oh, that's what you're seeing okay. in China right now. We right? Need, you're well, we, we're going to run out of time, Ash. We need, make a note here. Colin, can you make a note that we could drag, drag Dr. Alankar on again? soonest with janice henderson because i got like i got like 42 more questions <laughs> exactly and only four of them have to do with the greek letters <laughs> right you, you get, well you get you got your sharp ratio question in so you always <laughs> yeah. lead, lead with the strongest ashley anchor with us is janice henderson love having him on to talk about the dynamics in the market
John Hudak speaks, I think, 14 languages. He's at Brookings, uh, where he dissects American policy. John, help us with one of the themes this weekend, which is the durability or the longevity or the entrenchment of various presidential policies we've seen in the last three years. Is there a durability to Trump foreign policy? Uh, I don't think there's a durability necessarily to Trump foreign policy, in large part because it has been uh, fairly scattered from one moment to the next on uh, a given issue. We're not entirely sure uh, what the president believes is best. Uh, I think one of the best examples of that is the president's position on troops in Afghanistan. Um, we have gone from a president who has is now saying there's no timeline to pull troops out, um, coming all the way from a president who was ready to pull all the troops out very quickly. And so because of that, it's hard to imagine that a, po- a set of policies that are so volatile could possibly be durable. So, John, as we take a look at the uh, the waning moments of the G7 uh, meeting, it's uh, you know, when we think about the global trade here, obviously that was discussed um, probably at length there at the G7. Is it realistic to believe that any country could enter into a substantive trade agreement with uh, the United States, given how President Trump has uh, been so, I guess, you know, back and forth on so many key issues? You know, I do think it is possible for a country or for um, the EU uh, to enter into a trade agreement with the president. Uh, certainly, there are mutual interests that extend uh, among countries, and uh, the possibility really exists. I think you're right, Paul, that uh, because of the president's vacillation, it's hard to nail him down. And of course, when it comes to a trade agreement, everyone needs to be very firmly on the same page. Uh, but I do think it's possible, maybe not grand trade agreements, but something more uh, narrowed in on the few yeah. sets of things that you can nail the president down on. John, twice today, uh, at least, I haven't watched all of the president's actions. He turned to Secretary Mnuchin and lined up officers for whatever the answer was. It had anything to do with China and the dialogue with China. How engaged are they in the Trump messaging that we saw and particularly observed on Friday? You know, I, I think that the team around the president is critical to however the trade talks will proceed uh, with China. The reality is that uh, the president often speaks off the cuff. Um, it appears that that sort of conversational style approach to presidential rhetoric is not always 100% informed. And while I think that some might view the president uh, constantly turning to someone like the Treasury Secretary as a signal of weakness, I actually think it's the president at least uh, substituting uh, better judgment for his own when it's not fully informed. And so I think the more that the president turns to his advisors and asks for a more firm answer is much better for uh, this country and for the world than the president just simply saying whatever comes to the top of his mind. So, John, given some of the vacillations of this administration, what incentive do you think the Chinese have for actually engaging in meaningful discussions and trying to get a deal done? Or are they kind of on the flip side saying, we'll just wait for 2020? Well, you know, I, I think this is something that the Chinese are, are still figuring out. Ideally, um, they are going to uh, strike a trade deal when it is most opportune for them. And I think for President Xi, he has had moments during the Trump administration where he has thought, you know, this is the administration to strike this deal with. Uh, and then those moments pass. I think over the next 
six months probably, the Chinese are really going to start to game this out and say, is uh, Donald Trump the person we need to do this with? Or is there a Democratic nominee emerging who might be easier to work with and more stable to work with? What is their lobbying effort in Washington? I mean, with Brookings and all your connections, I mean, I I think the idea that China's in Beijing and they get in an airplane and they fly over here is pretty naive. What's their political thrust in lobbying in Washington? You know, I would get, I mean, I don't have an inside track on that, but from the outside, I I would say, uh, obviously, the Chinese have tremendous leverage uh, with regard to the interests of American companies. Uh, Any two economies on this planet, the size of the U.S. and China, are going to have a lot of overlapping interests. And I think they're using both their uh, leverage in China, but also their leverage among American companies and consumer preferences uh, to to move this forward. Again, uh, Bloomberg surveillance uh, worldwide. Of course, on Bloomberg Radio today, we're waiting for the press conference of uh, the President of the Republic of France, Mr. Macron, and the President of the United States, Donald Trump at Beirut. That will be coming up uh, in a bit. Paul, this is like um, with Roper, with Brooke Sutherland. I mean, it's 50 employees in Shanghai. It's not Boeing. (laughs) No. It's not Siemens of Germany, but all these little companies add up. Exactly. And so, John, kind of going on that, you know, what do you make of the president's call? I think I, I'm not sure how to really uh, describe it, that U.S. companies should leave China. This is very confusing. I, I mean, this is not the type of rhetoric that you would expect out of a free market conservative. This is not something you would expect out of a Republican president. And, and I think the irony, of course, is that uh, the president's favorite attack on Democrats in this country is to call them socialists. And it's it's odd to imagine the president trying to, you know, seize uh, the means of production abroad for American companies uh, to advance his own personal interests. And so I think we've only seen the beginning of the blowback that the president is going to get from this. And I think part of it will be uh, whether this was one tweet and then it dies off or whether the president really considers pursuing it. Um, That will tell us the extent to which this blowback is going to happen. John Hudak, thank you so much for Brookings today. Just terrific perspective here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.